Hello everyone, and welcome back to Bible Time with Pastor Brian, hosted by yours truly, Pastor Brian. Thank you all again for joining me and tuning in every Tuesday on Spotify, RSS, and either Samsung, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you're listening to me. Your presence, prayer, and support are constant sources of encouragement for me as I strive to give God-honoring and biblically sound teaching with what God has given me. And I thank you for um, coming back each and every week to listen to me. Today, we are returning to John 3 for part 2 of our three-episode series on the chapter. Last week, we discussed Nicodemus, man of the Pharisees, and the first half of his conversation with Jesus. We learned about rebirth and how it works in the Christian sense, as well as some background information about Jewish beliefs at the time that tend to have gotten uh, forgotten or ignored um, when we tend to study the passage sometimes. But thank you for listening again, and so... Kind of another quick recap is that back in the early part there in John chapter 3 that we covered last week, Nicodemus is having some trouble understanding some things. He is not grasping this concept that Jesus has brought up to him. Not the rebirth thing. He, he completely understands the rebirth part. He's been a Pharisee for so long, and it's part of their culture. It's part of the culture of the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians that are around them. That's not where the issue lies. The issue lies in the fact that Jesus has told him that they need a rebirth of the Spirit as well. Not just of like being reborn through water, like through baptism. It needs to be something completely different than that. Something that changes the very inside of who you are as a person. And so Nicodemus is confused. And his conversation with Jesus has been quite interesting so far. So let's pick up with verse 13, because we left off with verse 12 last week. So verse 13 says this. It says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, for the longest time when I would study this passage, when I would have the opportunity to read through John chapter 3, I, to be completely honest, I would kind of skip over verse 13, because I didn't understand it whatsoever until very, very recently. And I didn't understand it until I was studying through this study, or at least the fact that it's actually Jesus quoting the Old Testament when he is talking here in John 3.13. So the actual passage that he's quoting from the Old Testament is Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4. And it says, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So that's where Jesus is quoting from right there. And he knows that Nicodemus would have known that. Most of the people that lived around that time, even if they were Jewish, would have had some type of basic knowledge of this from hearing it in synagogue. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was somebody that had spent so long learning about every in and out of the what we would call the Old Testament, or that they would call the Tanakh, specifically the Torah that focuses on the law. But he would have known about this passage in Proverbs, and he would have known that that's exactly what Jesus was quoting there when he mentions that in verse 13. And essentially, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. He's saying that he is that one. The only one who can be the source of truth on heavenly things is the one who has been there. 
somebody that would know about heavenly things. Even the writers of the Old Testament, the prophets, that wrote all these great works that we still have to this day, they claimed that the Holy Spirit was the one telling them these things, that they were receiving these messages from God, these prophecies from the Lord himself. And Jesus is saying these things as if he is the Spirit, or he is the one, he is God, that is sharing this with them, and it's, you know, because he is. And he, he mentions that there, that only, only the Son of Man can understand these things. And Nicodemus knows that, Jesus knows that, because he is the Son of Man. No one has ascended to heaven except the one that came down from heaven. There is no one save the Son of Man who has had, or has the power currently, to ascend or descend from heaven. This passage speaks, or this passage speaks of Jesus' divine authority to bring the knowledge of heavenly things to people on earth. Now, there were, of course, a couple of people in the Old Testament that went the other way, right? As a lot of you might know already, where God brought them up to glory with him. But they didn't do that on their own power. God did that, not them. And so this is where Jesus has um, come down to earth on his own power, his own uh, in authority from the Father there. And so that's, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse number 13 is that he is the only one with the right to share this knowledge with with Nicodemus or with anybody for that matter. And so we get down to verse number 14, where it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, if you're not, that's okay too, but it's back in Numbers chapter 21, where Israel had kind of had some issues. Uh, they had spoken against Moses and God for bringing them out into the wilderness, and they were grumbling and complaining, you know, kind of as they had for the entire time that they were wandering through the wilderness. And as a punishment, God sent fiery serpents among them, causing a lot of them to die and to get sick from these snake bites. And so the people repented, uh, finally, of what they had said and what they had done against Moses and against God. And God... Um, who they had, of course, repented to, ends up directing Moses to make an image of one of the serpents and place it on a pole so that whoever looks upon it will live if they've been bitten. And Jesus is making another parallel between himself and the Old Testament, saying that that instance, that um, symbol that Moses was to create to heal the people, the Son of Man is to be treated the same way. He's to be lifted up just as Moses lifted up that serpent wilderness. And we see this repeated a couple times throughout scripture. So over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus is um, the one who is called he who knew no sin. He became to be sin on our behalf, just as that um, symbol that Moses created, this brazen serpent, as some of you might have heard called before, that he made it in the image of what was causing them to get sick and to get hurt and to get injured and to die and lifted it up to the people to where they could look upon it and find healing from those snake bites. Just as Jesus became sin for us and was placed upon a tree, upon a cross, to where we could look upon him and trust in him and find that forgiveness and that cleansing of our sins. So really, really cool of connection that Jesus is making there to the Old Testament. So two back-to-back -back right there where Jesus is bringing in what Nicodemus would have definitely 
definitely already known. And so continuing on here uh, to verse 15, it says, so that whoever believes will, will in him have eternal life. So not just a temporary physical healing like the serpents in the wilderness gave. This is an eternal healing that comes through looking upon the Son of Man when he is displayed as this um, taking on sin for us, taking on our sins so that we may be forgiven of them. So the serpent lifted up in the wilderness was only a temporary relief from death. All of those that were healed of the serpent bites, they ended up dying eventually, just as um, everyone dies. Of course, they didn't die from the snake bites because they were healed from that. The healing, though, that Jesus gives, that the Son of Man gives, the fulfillment of that symbol back in Numbers 21, the healing that he gives is an eternal one that no one or nothing else can give. And then verse 16, Jesus is continuing this teaching. And we, surely you know verse 16. It's probably one of the most well-quoted passages or singular verses, rather, in the entire Bible, other than none, really. It's probably the first verse a lot of people learn. Even if you're listening to this podcast and don't have a lot of interaction with church, you might not have been to church much, or maybe you've not even been to church at all. There's a really good chance, though, that you've probably heard John 3.16 before. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, like I said, probably the most quoted verse in all of Scripture. And why is that? There are so many other great verses throughout the Gospels and the letters of Paul and, and even in the Old Testament as well that are great passages to read and to find encouragement and inspiration from. But why this one specifically? And the thing that I gather from it is that it completely encapsulates the entire heart of the Gospel message. It brings this idea that God himself loved this world so much that he gave his only begotten son to this world to be sacrificed, and that whoever believed on him would not perish but have eternal life. They would have hope that nothing that mankind can produce or create or build can give them. Only God can give them that, and only through his son can they find it. And so Breaking down this verse piece by piece, you get to for God. He's the creator and sustainer of creation. And that he so loved, in this way he loved. And the word that's actually used here is agapeo, which connotates a regard of someone's welfare. And this comes from uh, Strong's dictionary there. And the world is the cosmos, the inhabitants of earth, the human race, God looked upon them and saw their pitiful state, saw that they had no hope of eternal life on their own. And because of his care and his love and him trying to seek out their welfare, their eternal spiritual welfare, he ended up sending his son. It says he gave. And to give someone to another to care for his interests is actually the connotation there as well. And then that same usage of the word, um, that's used for gave there is also used in Acts chapter 13 21 when describing God giving Saul to the people because they wanted a king. 
he knew back then in um, in the Old Testament that Israel really didn't need a king. They wanted one. And so he allowed them to have one, and he gave them Saul, who fit everything that there was to fit about being a king. He was big, he was strong, he was a warrior, and he ended up not being a great one. He was a horrible king. Absolutely terrible. Especially, I mean, you know that if you've read the story. And so to use that same word to describe God giving Jesus to the world, it's because God looked upon the world and saw not that the world wanted a savior, but that the world needed one. And he gave us the only savior that would be worthy of a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath that our sin brought upon us. And Saul was supposed to be a caretaker of the people and leader of God's people. He failed in that regard. Jesus is sent by God to take care of of humanity's sin problem. And then it says, uh, continuing on, it says, His only begotten son, Monogenes Huios, to be the only one son of God, that everyone who believes, pas pisuo, all who have faith and believe in him, will not perish, me apolumi. So, that word is actually kind of interesting that the um this means if not you will lose or cause a loss of eternal life and you will be delivered to eternal misery when it says perish right there so when those are coupled together though that will not um, part when that's coupled together it's implied that the sure fate of all of those who reject christ is to be in eternal misery, but have eternal life is the next line. Echo ahi u nias zone, to have without end and without ceasing a true life here and hereafter. Nicodemus would have known that Jesus is drawing a parallel to Abraham and Isaac here. God asked Abraham, out of obedience to him, to sacrifice the child God had promised him. Abraham was going to do it, but God provided a ram to substitute for Isaac. Abraham foretells not only Isaac's deliverance, but the deliverance of humanity through Christ, and not even meaning to. Back in Genesis 22.8, he says that God will provide for himself a ram. And, or a lamb is what um, Abraham actually ends up saying. But God ends up providing a ram for them. And the symbolism there is not to be lost in the fact that normally it would have been a lamb because lambs were looked upon without blemish and those they were the ones sacrificed, a young sheep, a young lamb. But an, a ram would have been an adult male sheep, obviously. And God provides a ram for Abraham and Isaac to be the substitution for Isaac's sacrifice, showing that Jesus would be sacrificed as an adult, but he would still be considered worthy, even though he was not this young sheep, this lamb at first. He was a ram. He was a fully grown man. He would still be worthy because his life that he had been living was completely sinless. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of this promise that was given through Abraham, that God would provide a lamb to his people 
not just to Abraham to substitute for Isaac, but to all mankind to substitute himself for the wrath that was deserved on our account. He ended up being the Lamb of God, and he still is the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world, as John proclaimed that he was. And so moving on down here into verse 17, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The world has already been found guilty, as Jesus is not here to enact punishment, but to provide hope and salvation from the coming punishment through giving himself as a sacrifice. The punishment of God is sure, and that it will be upon all of those who do not believe, as Jesus ends up mentioning in verse 18. So when he's saying here, he's saying God did not send the Son into this world to judge it, because it's already been judged, and it has already been found guilty. And it stands before an almighty, righteous, and holy, perfect God with no chance aside from God's only Son that he sent into this world, that the world might be saved through him. And then verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who believe will be spared from judgment, and those who don't, already are they are condemned because the punishment is already there it's a guarantee upon their life that if they never find payment for that if they never find redemption for that debt it will come due one day and it will be an eternity paying for it but those who believe in him they don't have to worry about that punishment because jesus has already taken that upon himself acts 4 12 it is, in the, it is in Jesus' name alone that we must trust for salvation. There is no name given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so, verse 19 says this. It says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Here is how the judgment between believers and non-believers is determined. That the light has come into this world. Jesus is the true light that's shown among men. You can go read about that in John chapter 1 if you would like to. Those who don't believe are those who picked darkness over light because their deeds were evil. In the darkness, someone can hide. Those who do evil deeds... They, they wish for them to remain hidden. They try to do them in the dark. But if they ever step into the light, all will be revealed. So they choose where they can continue in their evil ways. And that is the darkness. That is why they have loved their darkness. Because their deeds are evil. It says they've loved it. Loved the darkness. But it's all because of those evil deeds. There's a point of emphasis here. In the fact that Nicodemus has shown up to talk to Jesus in the dark. He's come to Jesus at nighttime. And what type of... Is um, nighttime associated with light or with darkness? 
Obviously, the answer there is darkness. And Jesus mentions light and darkness to Nicodemus on purpose. He has come to Jesus at night to most likely avoid detection. Even though he, he claims that he knows Jesus is from God, he treats visiting him as a bad thing that must be hidden. So you have this great paradox in Nicodemus's mind, or at least in his speaking and in his actions, where he has said that we know that you are a great teacher, rabbi, sent from God. For only somebody that was sent from God could do the things that you do. And yet he knows that. But he has come to Jesus at night because he looks at being associated with Jesus as being a bad thing. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus thinks this way. So don't, don't lose the irony there that Jesus is choosing to bring up light and darkness to Nicodemus, who was chosen to come to him at nighttime. And then we get down to verse 20. It says, For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Those of us that are followers of Jesus know that nothing we will ever do, say, think, act, whichever you would like to throw in there, whichever verb you would like to toss, nothing is ever hidden from God. He sees it all. But see, when you choose to follow after Jesus, you allow yourself to come into this light where those things are exposed. Not just you, to, but to potentially people around you. To where you can see the horrible things that you have done and thought and said. And try to reconcile those things. Try to repent of those things. Because how can you repent of something when you don't know that you've done it? And the only way you're going to know that you've done it is if you were following the true light that shines among men. And that is Jesus Christ. We compare ourselves to him and see the way he lived and the way he acted. That is when we see how horrible of people we can be sometimes. And Jesus proclaims himself as the true light. And he gives Nicodemus a choice here. That those who love and accept the light do so to get away from their evil ways. Because part of exposing them is so that you can see what they are and know what they are. And realize how to avoid them how to get away from them, how to be different. Those who stay in the darkness after encountering the truth are choosing to stay in their evil ways and are already condemned to suffer punishment because of it. When someone encounters Jesus and the truth of the gospel that we find in Scripture, when somebody encounters that and they choose to remain in darkness rather than embrace the light, they are doing so knowingly that they are in the wrong. They are doing so purposefully by rejecting the true light. And they are following their own sinful, fleshly desires of their hearts instead. Because they love the darkness and their deeds are evil. So the choice given to Nicodemus here, who will you be, Nicodemus? Will you be the one that shows up at nighttime thinking that learning more about heavenly things is evil? Or will you do so openly where other people can see you and do that without fear of them? Because when you step into the light and you follow this true light, this light that shines among men, that Jesus is and forever will be, are you going to count yourself among his followers? 
Because if you do, people will know. They will watch you. They will see everything that you do. Verse 21 says, But he who practices the truth comes to light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Those who follow and adhere to the truth come to the light, so that their deeds, all of them, will be revealed. Both good deeds and bad ones are not able to hide if you live in the light of Jesus Christ. But living in the light will be a motivation to live as Christ lived. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, act like him. You know, so often it is so easy to get caught up in disagreements and squabbles and things amongst other humans in this world. And a lot of times other Christians in this world. We are some of the most argumentative people out there. We love to talk and we love to talk against each other. But I'm here to tell you that that is not the way we are supposed to be. Jesus ended up telling the disciples at one point that they were to be known by their love for each other. And that should be who the church is known for today. Because of who Jesus is. Because of the love that he gave to his disciples to share with other people. That same love is the love that we get to share with this world today. Thank you guys for joining me here. I'm going to pray for us as we close out here tonight. God, as we come before you here, we're just so blessed and humbled and grateful for this day you've given us. and God, for this wonderful scripture here in John chapter 3 that you've allowed us to study here. And God, I pray that each and every one of us would take it and use it and apply it to our everyday lives, no matter where we go and no matter what we undertake to do. We pray, God, that you would just give us the strength and the courage to be obedient to your voice in all of it. We ask that you go with us, lead us, and guide us as our prayer. And You know, sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we falter and we fail. Well, really, a lot of times we do those things. But you are forever faithful to us. And I pray that you would give us the strength to be faithful to you and to the message of the gospel that you've given us to share to this world because it is the only hope that mankind has. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we do humbly pray. Amen. Thank you again, and I'll see you next week.